Welcome to our line-by-line, in-depth study of the book of Revelation. We're going to be covering Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 14 in our study today, entitled, The Mark of the Lamb Compared to the Mark of the Beast, or the Mark of the Lamb versus the Mark of the Beast. And let me start by showing you this in our text. I want us to look at a couple of verses. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. We've met these 144,000. We'll look at them again today. Now look down at verse 10. And it says, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength in the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb and the presence, uh, in the presence of the Lamb. And that is those who have taken the mark of the beast. I want to go back to verse 9, actually. The third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast or the image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So we see that the 144,000 received the, the name of God or the mark of the Lord on their forehead, and they are blessed and we see that those men of the earth that reject God and that take the mark of the beast have these things that are going to happen to them, which we're going to be talking about. Now, before we take a look at this contrast, let's consider what's happening in this chapter, because it's an interesting chapter. We are in another interlude, another, another parenthetical section. You remember there's a basic outline in the book of Revelation when it comes to the tribulation period. You have the seven seals. This is a scroll that has seven seals on it. The Lamb of God opens up the scrolls. The four horsemen come forward. Then the last, the seventh seal is open and there are seven trumpets. Those seven trumpets are sounded. And then at the last seventh trumpet, after that, there are seven bowl judgments that are poured out. They seem to intensify as they go on. The bowl judgments are worse than the seal judgments in, in, in general. And there are also interludes or gaps where we take a break in between the sounding of a trumpet. And this is right after the seventh trumpet and we're getting ready to start the first bowl and we've had a, a pretty big gap here. The gap has let us know the battle of the dragon throughout history to destroy the Messiah. It also introduced us to the Antichrist in chapter 13 and the false prophet in chapter 14. This chapter is a chapter of previews. You go to a movie, movie starts at seven o'clock, you get there by seven and a half hour later, the movie comes on because you watched a half hour of movies. We used to complain when it was 15 minutes of preview or 10 minutes of previews and it just keeps getting longer and longer. And if ever you think I'm going to go because they're going to have 20 minutes of previews, I'm not going to get there till 20 minutes after. That's the movie they're going to decide to start on time and you're going to be there 20 minutes into the movie. Well, this is a chapter of previews. It gives you previews for what's going to happen yet in the tribulation period. The first bowl is yet to be poured out, and this gives you these previews. There are seven of them. We're going to cover five of them tonight. We find them in verse 1, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 13. Those are the previews. I won't go over what they are because we're going to go over them now. So I don't need to tell you and then go back over them again. But that's what you get. And each of the previews are clearly marked with I looked and I saw or an angel said this 
there's something that clearly marks each of these previews as we make our way through. So this first preview is a preview of the return of Christ and the fate of the 144,000. It says in verse one, then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on his forehead. Now we've met these 144,000 in chapter seven, verses three and four. It says, saying, do not harm the sea. There are angels that are standing on the four corners of the earth, which is not a flat earth statement, by the way. That's, a, uh, that's a, um, uh, an artistic way of talking about the earth. So there's angels standing on the four corners of the earth and they're gonna hold back the winds. And an angel tells them to stop because something has to be done before they can, can, can harm the earth. And so here's what it says in verse three of Revelation seven, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Then they give 12 tribes from Judah, 12 tribes from Asher, and it goes down the list. And these are, these are Jews, these are 144,000. We're gonna learn male Jews who are committed to the lamb. We believe that during the tribulation period that they go out and proclaim the gospel. We also don't know exactly what happens to them during that time, whether they are supernaturally protected or whether they lose their life. And we'll get that as we make our way through here. So look at verse two. And I heard a voice from heaven, a voice like many waters and a voice of a loud thunder. We connect that to chapter one, the voice of the vision of Jesus who had the same kind of a voice. So this is the voice of Christ. And I heard the sound of a harpist playing their song. So in chapter five, we had the elders taking out harps and playing and singing a song. So now there's harp music playing. So John's seeing a vision. He sees the 144,000 with, with, with Jesus and suddenly there's music that's playing and they sang a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and the elders. Now, what I find really funny about these first two verses is when you're reading commentaries on them, the much of the discussion in the beginning is whether or not they're on heaven or they're on earth. And this is a vision. It's like a dream. Do you ever have a dream and you're telling somebody and you say this was happening and that was happening and I don't know why that was happening because I was at Aunt Joan's house so I don't know why that was there. There's things that are all mixed up. Well, here they're standing on Mount Zion, which would be Jerusalem, but they're up in heaven getting ready to sing their song. So this is a vision of what's happening to the 144,000. Now I wanna remind you of the other song that we heard in the book of Revelation. We're not gonna get to hear their song. They're the only ones who can sing it. We don't know what they sing, but listen to the last song that was sang by the elders. This is Revelation 5, eight through 10. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and each had a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which is the prayer of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every trunk, uh, tribe, tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now their song helps us to know who these 24 elders are, right? They are from every tongue, tribe, and nation. They have been redeemed by that. 
and they sing this song when the harp plays. They have harps to play them. Well, the music starts, and we don't know whether or not this is the 24 elders that are leading the music. It says that no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now, remember, these are previews. So this is a future event. So God doesn't want us to know. No one can sing it but them. And we'll one day understand more about the 144,000. And I realize we have a lot of questions that we don't get answered, but we'll find out a lot more then. It says, these are the ones who were not defiled by women, for they were virgins. Now we learn something more about these Jewish men. They were not married, they were virgins, and they were not defiled by women. This doesn't mean that sex it defiles a man. It means sex outside of marriage is defiling. They were virgins and they had kept themselves virgins and they did not have sex outside of marriage. Sex was created by God to, for procreation, for enjoyment, for intimacy between a husband and a wife. And I like to point out that sex was God's idea in the beginning. So done in the right place, in the right time is a good thing. But they, as being virgins, did not defile themselves with women. They had a commitment to Christ and they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever they go. Keeping ourselves defiled from the world may be connected to following the lamb wherever we go. That we keep our relationship with Jesus close, that we keep things right with him. When we get up in the morning, that we spend a few minutes with him. I try to do that every morning that I get up, go and sit down in my chair, I get my coffee, I get out my little phone where my Bible is on, and I spend a few times, a few moments talking and interacting with God and trying to follow him, doing what he says, doing the things that he wants us to do. That's what they did. They followed the lamb wherever he went. It says, these were redeemed from among men. So they were saved just like you and I. Redeemed means to be purchased back. They were redeemed by him and they are being first fruits of God and the lamb. So first fruits, the, the first fruits of the Jewish nation. So Israel is coming back, right? Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And because of that, God opened the door up for the Gentiles, for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. And it says in Romans 11, 25 and 26, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Israel, all of Israel is gonna be saved. It goes on to say there in that verse, all of Israel will be saved. God's gonna keep all of his promises to the nation of Israel, that they are a nation again today, just as Jesus promised, showed us. God did not redirect his promises from Israel to the church. That is not a proper teaching, it is not biblical. God is gonna restore the nation of Israel. These 144,000 are the first fruits. They're gonna all, by the end of the tribulation period, Jeremiah 37 says that the day of the Lord is severe. It is a day of Jacob's trouble. By the end of the tribulation period, they have come to Christ. Jesus is now their Messiah. They are gonna be the ones populating the millennium. Okay, so there's gonna be a millennium period. We are gonna be changed, we'll be resurrected, or we'll be changed in a moment in twinkling of an eye. So we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ and, and Israel will be populating the world. These are the first fruits, redeemed among um, men, the first fruits of the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit. And they were without fault before the throne of God. Now in their mouth was found no deceit, doesn't mean they were perfect, 
Remember when Jesus met Nathanael in the book of John? And do you remember that as Nathanael was walking up, Jesus said, behold, a man in whom there is no guile or deceit. It's the same word. It means honest. These, these 144,000 followed the lamb wherever he went. They kept themselves from being defiled sexually. They kept themselves pure sexually. They were honest before him and they were without fault before the throne of God. Now, why were they without fault before the throne of God? Not because they were 144,000 perfect people running around. That's why Jesus called them and chose them. But they had been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And so you are without fault before the throne of God. You may read about these 144,000 keeping themselves defiled from women and having no deceit among them and being right before the throne of God. And you may find conviction. You may feel like I want to be closer. I want more holiness. That is a work of the Holy Spirit to, to stir in our hearts to bring holiness unto God. Come out from among them, the Bible says, and be separate. We are supposed to be different than the world. And that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The word convict means is connected with convincing. It's not condemning. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the Holy Spirit would, would convict you that you would change follow the lamb, get things right, and by the blood of the lamb, redeemed from out of the world, you too will be without fault before the throne of God. But these are the first fruits of the Jewish people who are going to, become, or who are going to uh, return by the end of the tribulation period. Now it says that these who have the mark of God are marked by the Father, walk with the lamb, sing a new song, are redeemed, keep themselves from being defiled, don't have any deceit, and they are flawless before the throne of God, as all of us are who have a genuine relationship with him. This is a good start of the first fruits of the nation of Israel coming back to him. These are 144,000 Jewish people. I believe that they are Jewish, even though a lot, a lot of people come up with a lot of different ideas of who these people are. And I understand that this is the book of Revelation. Right? And people could come up with their different ideas. But it tells us the tribes that they are from. And there were never any lost tribes of Israel. This is really important to understand. They knew where they were from before they were dispersed when the Romans dispersed them. We have different people. Matthew was a Levite. Remember? He wasn't from Judah. We have a woman mentioned that's from Asher in the New Testament. They knew where they were from. They were taken captive by the Assyrian, the, nation, the 10 tribes of Israel were taken captives by the Assyrians. Judea stayed in the land until the Babylonians took them captive. But some from, uh, from the Assyrians returned, from the Assyrian captivity returned and knew who they were and knew what tribes they were from. Now today they don't know what tribe they're from. Some believe that there are genetic markers among the Jews that are going to allow them to know the different tribes. But we don't need to know who they're from because God's going to choose these 144,000 and God will know that he has preserved each of the tribes except the tribe of Dan. And if you want to know more about that, go get our study in Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 5 where you can look at us talking about the 144,000. You'll learn why the tribe of Dan isn't mentioned there. I don't have... I can't get into it tonight. I don't have enough time to do all I want to do and get into that. So uh, verse eight. Now that's the first vi vision. So verse eight brings us the second preview. Uh, and another angel followed saying, well, how did I jump to verse eight already? 
Man, I really went far, didn't I? All right, um, so we are back in um, six. There we go. So verse six brings us to our next preview. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the seas uh, and the sea, the springs of, and the springs of water. So now at the end of the tribulation period, when the Jewish nation has been taken by two wings of an eagle and taken into the desert and hidden from the dragon and the dragon attacks them, but the earth protects them. So they're protected somewhere on the earth. And since the Antichrist has been given power to overcome the saints, that's the tribulation saints, those who became believers after the church was caught up to meet the Lord in the air and forever be with the Lord. And then they are overcome by the saint. saints. Now there's no one to give the message to man. And so an angel flies through the heavens. And just like there's no lost tribes of Israel today that they're accounted for, this is not a satellite flying up in heaven, shooting down to a TV, preaching the gospel to people, all right? There, there are certain TV networks that have claimed that they are this angel in the last days. They are not. This is probably a literal angel that proclaims the truth. Angels minister to us now as we have been entrusted with the gospel and plant and water and, and, and shine as lights and are ambassadors for Christ to a world who desperately needs him. Remember that Jesus isn't far from anybody Paul said to the Athenians of all people, the people in Athens, Paul said that God put you in places and times that you could grope for him and find him. So when we're all gone, God's going to send an angel. Now in Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to the nations and the end will come. Now, some people have taught that if once we get out to all the nations, once we, we preach to every nation that is out there, there will be no unreached people groups at all, then the end is going to happen. There was even one pastor who put a world map up behind him on his television show, and he had pins in every nation that they were reaching, and he believed that when they got to every nation, Jesus was gonna return, that he was the force that would bring people there. It's, it's, not, it's not him. I'm not going to tell you who he is. I've told you before, but I'm not going to tell you now. <laughs> Just to tease you. It's not him and it's not us. Yes, we need to evangelize. But the angel is going to preach the, the gospel to every nation and then the end is going to come. Why would he tell us that? He's not giving us a point of reference of when it's going to happen. He's telling us that everyone in the world is going to hear the message before the end comes. Now, we go to verse eight and it says, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And immediately the vast majority of you have a question, who is Babylon? And to that I will say, please be patient. We have more in the book of Revelation written on Babylon than we, than we do on any other topic. We have chapters uh, 16, 17, part of 18 that talk about Babylon. 
It reflects back to the Tower of Babel, Nimrod. It reflects back to Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. It reflects back to those world powers. We do know that the entire world, the kings of the world are made rich by Babylon. It is a city and it is going to be destroyed. And that's the preview here. They're giving you a preview into the future. Now we've seen a preview where the 144,000 are with him, but in this preview, Babylon has fallen. The great city that made all nations drink of the wrath of her fornication. We'll talk more about that. I'm not going to break down any of that right now, but it's connected to what happens in the next vision. And that starts in verse nine or the next preview. Then a third of the angels followed them. Uh, then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast or his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wrath of God. Now, our next study next Wednesday is called the grapes of wrath. And it's about the wrath of God coming down at the very end. This is a preview and it's two more previews to come after this study. And he's going to come down at the very end and he's going to harvest the world and he's going to bring wrath upon those that remain. And so anyone who took the mark is going to experience that great wrath. It goes on to say, if he took the mark on his forehead, we'll also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. That's his anger, his wrath, his indignation. His justice will be fully served and God will take his wrath out on everyone that has done evil and wickedness in this world upon that generation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and smoke and the smoke of their torment will ascend forever and ever. And they, uh, and they have no rest day and night who worship the beast and his image who receives the mark of his name. Now I'm gonna read this section again and I want you to think about what you think about when you hear this, all right? He himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength on the cup of indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment shall ascend forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast or the image, whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, this is the most referred to passage on hell. And when you hear it, that's what you think of because of some of the things that Jesus said and because of the way that we've heard these references made before. But I wanna show you that this is not talking about those receiving the mark of the beast in hell. This is talking about their destruction. And I'm gonna give you evidence for that. I'm not just, gonna, not just gonna say that and leave it alone. I wanna show you what the Bible says about their destruction. We will get to hell. These guys are gonna be destroyed and they are going to die. Then they're gonna be resurrected and then they're gonna be judged and then they're gonna be thrown in the lake of fire. So they will have hell, but this is not a description of it. No matter how much we think of this being a description of what it is. So first of all, let's start with the idea of fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb. We understand that Jesus is, is God, he's omnipresent, the lamb is omnipresent, 
And, and David said, I make my bed in hell and you are there. So we could understand how they could be tormented in the presence of the lamb. But how could they be tormented in the presence of the angels? So we immediately see that there's a problem with that interpretation. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah had fire and brimstone fall upon them in uh, Genesis 19.24. On the war of Gog and Magog, in, it's, a, it's a battle yet to come from our day. When Iran and Libya and maybe Russia, uh, maybe Turkey, what today are Islamic nations, are going to come against Israel, they're going to get to the mountains of Israel and God's going to rain fire and brimstone on those armies and God's going to defeat them in the battle of Agog and Magog. And that's Ezekiel 38, 22, if you're taking notes. Listen to what 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8 says about the end of the world. This is the very end of the world. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus returns the second time, he comes on a white horse and he brings his vengeance with him and there's fire that comes with him. Now, I wanna move to an Old Testament passage. This is Isaiah 34. It's talking about the destruction of Edom, the nation of Edom, but it's also talking about the destruction of the world. And you're gonna get that. When you study the Old Testament, you see that there are layers in certain things that are said, like Isaiah 14 that talks about the king of Babylon and, 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 and Satan himself. And there's layers in it. So listen to what this says. This is a little bit of a lengthy passage, but I wanna read it all because it'll help you to get this. It says in Isaiah 34, come near, you nations to hear, and heed, you people. Let the earth hear, and let all that are in it, the word and all the things which come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against nations. Remember in Revelations it said, and the indignation of God? The indignation of the Lord is against all nations. Who? Everybody. And his fury against their armies. When he returns, the armies are in the valley of Jehoshaphat or the valley of Jezreel, which is by the mountain of Megiddo, Armageddon. It's called the valley of Armageddon. And he returns in the middle of that battle. And that's where the grapes of wrath end up coming in that we'll be talking about next week. He will utterly destroy them. He has given them over to slaughter and their slain shall be thrown out. Their, 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 stretch, uh, their stretch shall rise, their stench, thank you. It's, I don't know how their stretch would rise, to the, but their stench shall rise from their corpses. So this is a complete and total destruction of the nations. Now I want to skip down to verse 9. It's still the same thing. It says, its streams shall be burnt into pitch, it's dust into brimstone. So the Lord returns with fire and brimstone when he destroys the nations. And the land shall become pitch. Verse 10, it shall not be quenched night or day. So when Jesus returns, 
it's going to be day in one part of the world and night in another part of the world. And however long it takes for him to destroy the people who are on the earth who have taken the mark of the beast, which is what this destruction is describing in Isaiah, they will not rest day nor night. It's not talking about them being in hell forever, not sleeping day or night. And I'm not saying that hell is not eternal. We'll talk about that in the future. Okay, I'm just saying this is not talking about that. All right. So uh, it shall not be quenched day or night. Its smoke shall ascend forever. What did it say in our passage? And the smoke of their torment will ascend forever and ever. Now at the destruction, the smoke will ascend forever. Now, when it says their smoke shall ascend forever and ever, that is a Jewish idiom. An idiom is when you use a cluster of words that cannot be broken down to their individual parts to make sense of them. You have to be part of the culture to understand what was being said. Like if I say to you, it's going to rain cats and dogs later on tonight. You better get out of here. Somebody in 100 years that's not part of our culture is going to go, it used to rain cats and dogs. <laughs> look, you can see it right here. There's references to it. What a weird thing. What a, what a strange thing. But we know that's not what it means. And so the smoke ascending forever and ever means a final destruction, that they are destroyed forever and ever. We know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And we know that this smoke is not going to arise forever. So they're talking about total and complete destruction. I'm going to show you more passages on that in a moment. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation, it shall, it shall lie waste and none shall pass through it forever and ever. Again, the finality of it. God's destruction of those that take the mark of the beast is a final and complete destruction. Now I'm going to move you ahead a little bit into the book of Revelation to the very end, chapter 19. It says, after these things, I heard a loud voice and a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication which is Babylon that fell in Revelation 14. And he has avenged her, the blood of the servants shed by her. Again, they say, Alleluia, or hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. That's a city that's destroyed and the smoke rises forever and ever. Again, a Jewish idiom that means permanently. The city is destroyed. The smoke they see rising marks the destruction of the city. And there may be some, you know, physical way in which people talk about things lasting forever, material lasting forever, and that the smoke would rise forever and ever. You know, people talk about when we say something that the sound vibrations go on and, and what we said goes on forever. I don't know if that's true, by the way. I always question things like that when I hear somebody say it. But maybe... Maybe there's a way in which the things we say stay forever and ever. And if that's a drag, if we think about some of the things we've said. So maybe there's a way in which it's true that the smoke goes up forever and ever. But it is a Jewish idiom that means permanent. Now, Revelation 18, 9 and 10. Now, who, what was that we just read? We just read heaven rejoicing because Babylon was destroyed. Heaven's like, yes, praise the Lord, hallelujah. The, 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 this harlot has been destroyed and, and now it's out of the way. 
Now we see the earth mourning the destruction of Babylon. Remember how this vision started? Babylon has fallen, Babylon has fallen. So Revelation 18, 9 and 10. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour her judgment has come. So our text in Revelation 14 said, the smoke of her torment goes up forever and ever. So he's talking about the destruction of the city of Babylon. This is a vision of the destruction of the city of Babylon and the destruction of all of the people around the world who have taken the mark of the beast. Now I'm gonna go back and read it to you again, starting in verse nine. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast or his image or receives the mark on his forehead or hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. That's Jesus returning, you know, at the Armageddon, which is poured out in full strength the cup of his indignation, which we read in Isaiah 34. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, which happens literally to Babylon and at the end of the world, that both fire and brimstone come upon the earth at the end. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, because it's the Lamb returning to the earth. It's in their, his presence. And who's with him? The angels. All the angels are with him when he returns. And us. The Bible says in, let me see if I got that here. The Colossians 3, 4. When Christ who is our life appears, you also will appear with him. But when Jesus returns in, the present, in his presence and in the presence of the angels who are with him, the, the earth is going to be suddenly uh, the, the mystery Babylon is tormented. The smoke of her torment goes up forever and ever. Now it goes on to say here, uh, the wine of God's wrath will be poured out, the brimstone presence forever and ever and the holy angels and the lamb and the smoke of her torment ascends forever and ever, which is permanent. And, and he will have no rest day and night because there's night and day when Jesus returns. And so people will not rest night or day who worship the beast or the image who ever receives the mark on his name. Now, you may ask, well, then what does that mean about the passages that Jesus talked about, about hell? Jesus was talking about hell and we'll talk about what they mean connected to hell when we get there. It's just important to know that this is not a passage talking about them being tormented. We'll get to judgment and the lake of fire. We'll get to that. But that's not what this passage is about. Now we get a final vision in verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. So we started with the, the 144,000 in the presence of the Lamb of God. We ended up with those who received the mark of the beast and their final destruction, their permanent final destruction. But now here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and the, the, their works follow them. So the Antichrist is given power over the saints. The nation of Israel is taken and protected, but the Antichrist is given power over them and through the, the image of the beast that is made to speak and those who don't bow down to him and don't take the mark of the beast, 
they will be killed. And so the Lord is saying, blessed are you who die in the Lord from now on. There, in the tribulation period, it will just be a blessing to die. It'll be a blessing to give your life to the Lord. This harkens back to the early church. The early church had a sense that if they gave their life for the Lord, it was a true blessing. Many within the first, second, and third century following Jesus' resurrection had the feeling of giving their life to the Lord, and, and many did. There were certain emperors, starting with Nero, other emperors that persecuted the church, Polycarp, um, different individuals where the story is told, where they were given opportunities to, to deny Jesus and they would not be killed and they would not deny Jesus and they had wild animals released upon them and they talked about the honor of dying. I think it was Ignatius, the early church father who was in Smyrna, um, it might have been Carp in Smyrna, who was, who was, it was, but he was, he was, he was somewhere. <laughs> and they encouraged him to run and hide, but he didn't do it. Instead, he turned himself in. And, and when, when Christians decided that they were going to try to sneak in and figure out a way to get him, he encouraged them to let the beasts have him, to let him glorify God by the beast devouring him. He saw an honor in what he gave and there will be an honor in dying for the Lord and then the labors will be done. Think about them hiding, trying to find food, not being able to buy or sell. And when their lives are finally taken from them and this is not them killing themselves, this is them being martyred for Christ. Then they rest from their labors. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from here on. Now, three things in closing. Number one, like the 144,000, we will be with him when Christ returns. And like they followed him everywhere he went, that's the first fruits of the nation of Israel. And you and I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, some of you, I'll say away from me, I never knew you. And then they'll say, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he says, away from me, I didn't know you. We have to know him. We have to be in a relationship with him. We follow him like the 144,000 followed him. And when he returns, we will be with him. Number two, a time will come when the angels will proclaim the gospel. But we do it today. We have that today. And we wanna plant seeds and we wanna water. The Bible says one plants and another waters and God adds the increase. God's the one that adds to it. Jesus said, the harvest is ready. There are people who are ready to hear the gospel. And we should live our lives with a sense of people watching us planting and watering. God's responsible for the harvest, but we live our lives in such a way that people see Christ and come to him. Mark 16, 15 says, and he said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I love that he said every creature. Just so no people could be left out. We'll preach the gospel to these people, but not these people because I don't like them. We're to preach to every creature. I love the story of Steve Mays, who's gone to be with the Lord, but he was a Calvary Chapel pastor in um, South Bay, I think, uh, in, uh, in California. And uh, he, would, he wanted to be a pastor really bad. And there was no place open. He just didn't get an opportunity to do it. And he used to go practice on turkeys. And he would back his truck up to a fence where there was a turkey farm. And that's how they fed the turkeys. So all the turkeys would come running over. And he would preach to the turkeys. 
We had him speak here one time at one of our conferences. And he said, and I'm still preaching to turkeys today. So that was his line. <laughs> I'm preached to turkeys then. I'm still preaching to turkeys today. But preach, and that would be his line, preach the gospel to every creature. Just know everyone around you needs to see, hear the message of Christ. It needs to be done with tact. It needs to be done in love. It needs to be done so they'll receive it. It needs to be done being led by the Spirit. It's not done, it's, it's not a blunt force where you just go in and lay it on everybody and now you're responsible. Our desire is to see them come to Christ and to be as effective as we can as living our life for Him so the people around us see Christ and, and, and down the road at some point when God moves upon their heart that that would be used to bring them in. Number three, like the 144,000, let there be no deceit. Like Nathaniel, let us be honest. Let us be sincere in our relationship with God. Let us, let us be without hypocrisy in serving him and following him. There's something about being holy unto the Lord, coming out from among them and being separate. You know, we, we find out from time to time that the, the world isn't ours, that we're not part of it. You know where I find that out most often? Maybe you're the same way. When I go to a movie, I decide that looks like a good movie. We're gonna go to that movie or we watch that movie. Then all of a sudden in the middle of the movie comes something that is so anti-God and anti and, and vile to us as believers that you realize this isn't my home. This isn't where I belong. I belong with Christ. I'm his. And may we live with that kind of honesty, that kind of sincerity and without hypocrisy. And if God is laying conviction on you now, that's conviction. It's not condemnation. Satan would like to use it for condemnation. Satan would like to say, you haven't been able to do, to have honesty without sincerity and hypocrisy, you stinking rotten Christian. That's the devil. He wants you condemned. You're condemned. You can't do it. The Holy Spirit wants to convince you. Walk with him, love him, be with him. I'm gonna empower you to do it. The Holy Spirit convicts us and empowers us to be able to live for Christ. And so we make things right and we call out upon his name and we are holy before the throne. Even if when you came in here, there wasn't sincerity and you weren't without hypocrisy and you had planned things that you were going to do. When you now come in and you call out to him, you can ask him here quietly before you take communion tonight, Lord, forgive me and you will be holy before the throne of God because all of your sins will be forgotten. Under the blood, put behind his back, remembered no more, the Bible says. And what a wonderful thing that the mercies of God are new every morning, that his grace never runs out. You might, the, the enemy would like to think, you to think it does, but it hasn't run out and it's here for you today and you can have a brand new, fresh start right now. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we've taken time to study your word, to look at this passage about the end of the world, the destruction of the world, the smoke of the torment and fire and brimstone that will come upon those that have taken the mark of the beast and how radically different that is than the 144,000 who, whatever their end was, follow you now wherever they go. And you have their lives in your hands, the first fruits of the nation of Israel. And Lord, we pray that we too would be like them with no deceit. Help us, 
forgive us. Help us to walk with you in that honesty like Nathaniel that just wanted to serve God with a real honesty. May we come to you with that real honesty in the midst of the world that we live in. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.